Section 91 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Section 9, Part 2, Book the Eighth, Chapter 1, Analysis of Majestic Matters. Irresistible fate ever carrying him forward, which had now for so many hours showered its surprises on Gwynplaine, and which had transported him to Windsor, transferred him again to London. Visionary realities succeeded each other without a moment's intermission. He could not escape from their influence. Freed from one, he met another. He had scarcely time to breathe. Anyone who has seen a juggler throwing and catching balls can judge the nature of fate. Those rising and falling projectiles are like men tossed in the hands of destiny. Projectiles and playthings. On the evening of the same day, Gwynplaine was an actor in an extraordinary scene. He was seated on a bench covered with fleur-de-lis. Over his silken clothes he wore a robe of scarlet velvet, lined with white silk, with a cape of ermine, and on his shoulders two bands of ermine embroidered with gold. Around him were men of all ages, young and old, seated like him on benches covered with fleur-de-lis, and dressed like him in ermine and purple. In front of him other men were kneeling, clothed in black silk gowns. Some of them were writing. Opposite, and a short distance from him, he observed steps, a raised platform, a dais, a large escutcheon, glittering between a lion and a unicorn, and at the top of the steps, on the platform under the dais, resting against the escutcheon, was a gilded chair with a crown over it. This was a throne, the throne of Great Britain. Gwynplaine, himself a peer of England, was in the House of Lords. How Gwynplaine's introduction to the House of Lords came about, we will now explain. Throughout the day, from morning to night, from Windsor to London, from Corleone Lodge to Westminster Hall, he had step by step mounted higher in the social grade. At each step he grew giddier. He had been conveyed from Windsor in a royal carriage with a peer's escort. There is not much difference between a guard of honour and a prisoner's. On that day, travellers on the London and Windsor Road saw a galloping cavalcade of gentlemen pensioners of Her Majesty's household escorting two carriages drawn at a rapid pace. In the first carriage sat the usher of the black rod, his wand in his hand. In the second was to be seen a large hat with white plumes, throwing into shadow and hiding the face underneath it. Who was it who was thus being hurried on? A prince? A prisoner. It was Gwynplaine. It looked as if they were conducting some one to the tower, unless, indeed, they were escorting him to the House of Lords. The Queen had done things well. As it was for her future brother-in-law, she had provided an escort from her own household. The officer of the usher of the Black Rod rode on horseback at the head of the cavalcade. The usher of the black rod carried, on a cushion placed on a seat of the carriage, a black portfolio stamped with the royal crown. At Brentford, the last relay before London, the carriages and escort halted. A four-horse carriage of tortoiseshell, with two postilions, a coachman in a wig, and four footmen was in waiting. The wheels, steps, 
springs, pole, and all the fittings of this carriage were gilt. The horse's harness was of silver. This state coach was of an ancient and extraordinary shape, and would have been distinguished by its grandeur among the fifty-one celebrated carriages of which Robo has left us drawings. The usher of the black rod and his officer alighted, the latter having lifted the cushion on which rested the royal portfolio from the seat in the post-chaise carried it on outstretched hands and stood behind the usher he first opened the door of the empty carriage then the door of that occupied by gwynplaine and with downcast eyes respectfully invited him to descend gwynplaine left the chaise and took his seat in the carriage the usher carrying the rod and the officer supporting the cushion followed and took their places on the low front seat provided for pages in old state coaches the inside of the carriage was lined with white satin trimmed with banch silk with tufts and tassels of silver the roof was painted with armorial bearings the postilions of the chaises they were leaving were dressed in the royal livery the attendants of the carriage they now entered wore a different but very magnificent livery Gwynplaine, in spite of his bewildered state, in which he felt quite overcome, remarked the gorgeously attired footman, and asked the usher of the black rod, "'Whose livery is that?' He answered, "'Yours, my lord.' The House of Lords was to sit that evening. Curia erat serena, run the old records. In England, parliamentary work is by preference undertaken at night." it once happened that sheridan began a speech at midnight and finished it at sunrise the two post-chaises returned to windsor gwynplaine's carriage set out for london this ornamented four-horse carriage proceeded at a walk from brentford to london as befitted the dignity of the coachman gwynplaine's servitude to ceremony was beginning in the shape of his solemn-looking coachman the delay was moreover apparently prearranged and we shall see presently its probable motive. Night was falling, though it was not quite dark, when the carriage stopped at the King's Gate, a large sunken door between two turrets connecting Whitehall with Westminster. The escort of gentlemen pensioners formed a circle around the carriage. A footman jumped down from behind it and opened the door. The usher of the black rod, followed by the officer carrying the cushion, got out of the carriage and addressed Gwynplaine. "'My lord, be pleased to alight. "'I beg your lordship to keep your hat on.' Gwynplaine wore under his travelling cloak the suit of black silk, which he had not changed since the previous evening. He had no sword. He left his cloak in the carriage. Under the arched way of the king's gate there was a small side door raised some few steps above the road. In ceremonial processions the greatest personage never walks first. The usher of the black rod, followed by his officer, walked first. Gwynplaine followed. They ascended the steps and entered by the side door. Presently they were in a wide, circular room with a pillar in the center, the lower part of a turret. The room, being on the ground floor, was lighted by narrow windows in the pointed arches, which served but to make darkness visible. Twilight often lends solemnity to a scene. Obscurity is in itself majestic. In this room, thirteen men, disposed in ranks, were standing, three in the front row, six in the second row, and four behind. 
In the front row, one wore a crimson velvet gown. The other two, gowns of the same color, but of satin. All three had the arms of England embroidered on their shoulders. The second rank wore tunics of white silk, each one having a different coat of arms emblazoned in front. The last row were clad in black silk, and were thus distinguished. The first wore a blue cape. The second had a scarlet St. George embroidered in front. The third, two embroidered crimson crosses, in front and behind. The fourth had a collar of black sable fur. All were uncovered, wore wigs, and carried swords. Their faces were scarcely visible in the dim light. Neither could they see Gwynplaine's face. The usher of the black rod, raising his wand, said, My lord Fermain Clancharlie, Baron Clancharlie at Hunkerville, I, the usher of the black rod, first officer of the presence chamber, hand your lordship over to Garter King at Arms. The person, clothed in velvet, quitting his place in the ranks, bowed to the ground before Gwynplaine, and said, My lord Fermain Clancharlie, I am Garter principal king-at-arms of England, I am the officer appointed and installed by His Grace, the Duke of Norfolk, hereditary Earl Marshal. I have sworn obedience to the king, peers, and knights of the garter. The day of my installation, when the Earl Marshal of England anointed me by pouring a goblet of wine on my head, I solemnly promised to be attentive to the nobility, to avoid bad company, to excuse, rather than accuse, gentlefolks and to assist widows and virgins it is i who have the charge of arranging the funeral ceremonies of peers and the supervision of their armorial bearings i place myself at the orders of your lordship the first of those wearing satin tunics having bowed deeply said my lord i am clarenceau second king-at-arms of england i am the officer who arranges the obsequies of nobles below the rank of peers i am at your lordship's disposal the other wearer of the satin tunic bowed and spoke thus my lord i am norroy third king-at-arms of england command me the second row erect and without bowing advanced apace the right-hand man said my lord we are the six dukes-at-arms of england i am york then each of the heralds or dukes-at-arms speaking in turn proclaimed his title I am Lancaster, I am Richmond, I am Chester, I am Somerset, I am Windsor. The coats of arms embroidered on their breasts were those of the counties and towns from which they took their names. The third rank, dressed in black, remained silent. Garter King-at-Arms pointed them out to Gwynplaine, said, My lord, these are the four Percivants at arms blue mantle. The man with the blue cape bowed. Rouge Dragon. He with the St. George inclined his head. Rouge Croix. He with the scarlet crosses saluted. Portcullis. He with the sable fur collar made his obeisance. On a sign from the king-at-arms, the first of the Percivants, blue mantle, stepped forward and received from the officer of the usher the cushion of silver cloth and crown-emblazoned portfolio and the king-at-arms said to the usher of the black rod proceed i leave in your hands the introduction of his lordship 
the observance of these customs and also of others which will now be described were the old ceremonies in use prior to the time of henry the eighth and which anne for some time attempted to revive there is nothing like it in existence now nevertheless the house of lords thinks that it is unchangeable and if conservatism exists anywhere it is there it changes nevertheless a per si mauve for instance what has become of the maypole which the citizens of london erected on the first of may when the peers went down to the house the last one was erected in seventeen thirteen since then the maypole has disappeared disuse outwardly unchangeable inwardly mutable take for example the title of albemarle it sounds eternal yet it has been through six different families odo mandeville bethune plantagenet beauchamp monk under the title of leicester five different names have been merged beaumont Bruce, dudley sydney coke under lincoln six under pembroke seven the families change under unchanging titles a superficial historian believes in immutability in reality it does not exist man can never be more than a wave humanity is the ocean aristocracy is proud of what women consider a reproach age yet both cherish the same illusion that they do not change it is probable the house of lords will not recognize itself in the foregoing description nor yet in that which follows thus resembling the once pretty woman who objects to having any wrinkles the mirror is ever a scapegoat yet its truths cannot be contested to portray exactly constitutes the duty of a historian the king-at-arms turning to gwynplaine said be pleased to follow me my lord and added you will be saluted your lordship in returning the salute will be pleased merely to raise the brim of your hat they moved off in procession towards a door at the far side of the room the usher of the black rod walked in front then blue mantle carrying the cushion then the king-at-arms and after him came gwynplaine wearing his hat the rest kings-at-arms heralds and pursuivants remained in the circular room gwynplaine preceded by the usher of the black rod and escorted by the king-at-arms passed from room to room in a direction which it would now be impossible to trace the old houses of parliament having been pulled down amongst others he crossed the gothic state chamber in which took place the last meeting of james the second and monmouth and whose walls witnessed the useless debasement of the cowardly nephew at the feet of his vindictive uncle on the walls of this chamber hung in chronological order nine full-length portraits of former peers with their dates lord nansladron thirteen o five lord balliol thirteen o six lord bellestead thirteen fourteen lord cantaloupe thirteen fifty six lord mountbegon thirteen fifty seven lord tibotot thirteen seventy three lord zouch of codnor sixteen fifteen lord bella aqua with no date lord heron and surrey count of blois also without date it being now dark lamps were burning at intervals in the galleries brass chandeliers with wax candles illuminated the rooms lighting them like the side aisles of a church none but officials were present 
In one room, which the procession crossed, stood, with heads respectfully lowered, the four clerks of the signet, and the clerk of the council. In another room stood the distinguished knight banneret, Philip Sydenham of Brimpton, in Somersetshire. The knight banneret is a title conferred in time of war, under the unfurled royal standard. In another room was a senior baronet of England, Sir Edmund Bacon of Suffolk, heir of Sir Nicholas Bacon, styled Primus Barentorum Anglicae. Behind Sir Edmund was an armor-bearer with an arquebus and an esquire carrying the arms of Ulster, the baronets being the hereditary defenders of the province of Ulster in Ireland. In another room was a chancellor of the exchequer, with his four accountants and the two deputies of the Lord Chamberlain, appointed to cleave the tallies, twenty-one. At the entrance of a corridor covered with matting, which was the communication between the lower and the upper house, Gwynplaine was saluted by Sir Thomas Mansell of Margam, comptroller of the Queen's household and member for Glamorgan, and at the exit from the corridor by a deputation of one for every two of the barons of the Sank ports, four on the right and four on the left, the Sank ports being eight in number. William Hastings did obeisance for Hastings, Matthew Aylmore for Dover, Josius Burchett for Sandwich, Sir Philip Boteler for Hythe, John Brewer for New Romney, Edward Southwell for the town of Rye, James Hayes for Winchelsea, George Naylor for Seaford. As Gwynplaine was about to return the salute, the king-at-arms reminded him in a low voice of the etiquette. Only the brim of your hat, my lord. Gwynplaine did as directed. He now entered the so-called painted chamber, in which there was no painting, except a few of saints, and amongst them St. Edward. In the high arches of the long and deep pointed windows, which were divided by what formed the ceiling of Westminster Hall and the floor of the painted chamber, on the far side of the wooden barrier which divided the room from end to end, stood the three secretaries of state, men of mark. The functions of the first of these officials comprised the supervision of all affairs relating to the south of England, Ireland, the colonies, France, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Turkey. The second had charge of the north of England, and watched affairs in the Low Countries, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Poland, and Russia. The third, a Scot, had charge of Scotland. The two first mentioned were English, one of them being the Honorable Robert Harley, member of the borough of New Radnor. A Scotch member, Mungo Graham, Esquire, a relation of the Duke of Montrose, was present. All bowed without speaking to Gwynplaine, who returned the salute by touching his hat. The barrier-keeper lifted the wooden arm which, pivoting on a hinge, formed the entrance to the far side of the painted chamber, where stood the long table covered with green cloth reserved for peers. A branch of lighted candles stood on the table. Gwynplaine, preceded by the usher of the black rod, garter king-at-arms, and blue mantle, penetrated into this privileged compartment. The barrier-keeper closed the opening immediately Gwynplaine had passed. The king-at-arms, having entered the precincts of the privileged compartment, halted. The painted chamber was a spacious apartment. At the farther end, 
upright beneath the royal escutcheon which was placed between the two windows stood two old men in red velvet robes with two rows of ermine trimmed with gold lace on their shoulders and wearing wigs and hats with white plumes through the openings of their robes might be detected silk garments and sword hilts motionless behind them stood a man dressed in black silk holding on high a great mace of gold surmounted by a crowned lion it was a mace-bearer of the peers of england the lion is their crest et les lions ce sont les barons et les pères runs the manuscript chronicle of bertrand du guesclin the king-at-arms pointed out the two persons in velvet and whispered to gwynplaine my lord these are your equals be pleased to return their salute exactly as they make it these two peers are barons and have been named by the lord chancellor as your sponsors they are very old and almost blind they will themselves introduce you to the house of lords the first is charles mildmay lord fitzwalter sixth on the roll of barons the second is augustus arundel lord arundel of terrice thirty-eighth on the roll of barons the king-at-arms having advanced a step towards the two old men proclaimed fermain blancharlie baron clancharlie baron hunkerville marquis of corleone in sicily greets your lordships the two peers raised their hats to the full extent of the arm and then replaced them gwynplaine did the same the usher of the black rod stepped forward followed by blue mantle and garter king-at-arms the mace-bearer took up his post in front of Gwynplaine. The two peers at his side, Lord Fitzwalter on the right, and Lord Arundel of Tierrice on the left. Lord Arundel, the elder of the two, was very feeble. He died the following year, bequeathing to his grandson John, a minor, the title which became extinct in 1768. The procession, leaving the painted chamber, entered a gallery in which were rows of pilasters, and between the spaces were sentinels, alternately pikemen of England and halberdiers of Scotland. The Scotch halberdiers were magnificent kilted soldiers, worthy to encounter later on at Fontenoy the French cavalry, and the royal cuirassiers, whom their colonel thus addressed, Monsieur le Maître assurez-vous chapeau nous allons avoir l'honneur de charger the captain of these soldiers saluted gwynplaine and the peers his sponsors with their swords the men saluted with their pikes and halberds at the end of the gallery shone a large door so magnificent that its two folds seemed to be masses of gold on each side of the door there stood upright and motionless men who were called doorkeepers just before you came to this door the gallery widened out into a circular space in this space was an armchair with an immense back and on it judging by his wig and from the amplitude of his robes was a distinguished person it was william cowper lord chancellor of england to be able to cap a royal infirmity with a similar one has its advantages william cowper was short-sighted and had also defective sight but in a lesser degree the near-sightedness of william cowper found favor in the eyes of the short-sighted queen and induced her to appoint him lord chancellor and keeper of the royal conscience william cowper's upper lip was thin and his lower one was thick a sign of semi-good nature this circular space was lighted by a lamp hung from the ceiling 
the Lord Chancellor was sitting gravely in his large armchair. At his right was the Clerk of the Crown, and at his left the Clerk of the Parliaments. Each of the clerks had before him an open register and an inkhorn. Behind the Lord Chancellor was his mace-bearer, holding the mace with the crown on the top, beside the train-bearer and purse-bearer in large wigs. All these officers are still in existence. On a little stand near the woolsack was a sword, with a gold hilt and sheath, and belt of crimson velvet. Behind the clerk of the crown was an officer holding in his hands the coronation robe. Behind the clerk of the parliaments another officer held a second robe, which was that of a peer. The robes, both of scarlet velvet, lined with white silk, and having bands of ermine trimmed with gold lace over the shoulders, were similar except that the ermine band was wider on the coronation robe. The third officer, who was a librarian, carried a square of Flanders leather, the red book. A little volume, bound in red morocco, containing a list of the peers and commons, besides a few blank leaves and a pencil, which it was the custom to present to each new member on his entering the house. Gwynplaine, behind the two peers, his sponsors, brought up the procession which stopped before the woolsack. The two peers, who introduced him, uncovered their heads, and Gwynplaine did likewise. The king-at-arms received from the hands of blue mantle the cushion of silver cloth, knelt down, and presented the black portfolio on the cushion to the Lord Chancellor. The Lord Chancellor took the black portfolio and handed it to the clerk of the Parliament. The clerk received it ceremoniously and then sat down. The clerk of the Parliament opened the portfolio and arose. The portfolio contained the two usual messages, the royal patent addressed to the House of Lords, and the writ of summons. The clerk read aloud these two messages, with respectful deliberation, standing. The writ of summons, addressed to Fermain Lord Clancharlie, concluded with the accustomed formalities, We strictly enjoin you, on the faith and allegiance that you owe, to come and take your place in person among the prelates and peers sitting in our Parliament at Westminster, for the purpose of giving your advice, in all honour and conscience, on the business of the kingdom and of the church. The reading of the messages being concluded, the Lord Chancellor raised his voice. The message of the Crown has been read. Lord Clancharlie, does your lordship renounce transubstantiation, adoration of saints, and the mass? Gwynplaine bowed. The test has been administered, said the Lord Chancellor. And the clerk of the Parliament resumed. His lordship has taken the test. The Lord Chancellor added, My lord Clancharlie, you can take your seat. So be it, said the two sponsors. The king-at-arms rose, took the sword from the stand, and buckled it around Gwynplaine's waist. C'est fait, says the old Norman charter. Le père prend son espée, elle monte au haut siege, et assiste l'audience. Gwynplaine heard a voice behind him which said, I array your lordship in a peer's robe. At the same time, the officer who spoke to him, who was holding the robe, placed it on him and tied the black strings of the ermine cape round his neck. Gwynplaine, the scarlet robe on his shoulders, and the golden sword by his side, was attired like the peers on his right and left. The librarian presented to him the red book, and put it in the pocket of his waistcoat. 
The king at arms murmured in his ear, My lord, on entering, will bow to the royal chair. The royal chair is the throne. Meanwhile, the two clerks were writing, each at his table, one on the register of the crown, the other on the register of the house. Then both, the clerk of the crowns preceding the other, brought their books to the Lord Chancellor, who signed them. Having signed the two registers, the Lord Chancellor rose. Fermain, Lord Clancharlie, Baron Clancharlie, Baron Hunkerville, Marquis of Corleone in Sicily, be you welcome among your peers, the Lord Spiritual and Temporal of Great Britain. Gwynplaine's sponsors touched his shoulder. He turned round. The folds of the great gilded door at the end of the gallery opened. It was the door of the House of Lords. Thirty-six hours only had elapsed since Gwynplaine, surrounded by a different procession, had entered the iron door of Southwark Jail. What shadowy chimeras had passed, with terrible rapidity through his brain! Chimeras which were hard facts, rapidity which was a capture by assault. End of section 91 Recording by William Tomko